Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... In some cases, the only person providing the details of the case, the details of someone's murder, is the killer themselves. On January 14th, 2002, a man was sentenced to death for a crime that, at the end of the day, only has his version of the story to be told. A version that, of course, doesn't name him as the murderer. A version that cannot be argued because the only person who can contest was the victim of the crime. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In the year 2000, 13-year-old Emily Branch's life was in a bit of an upheaval. Her mother Tracy was married to a man named Charles Rice, and though Emily never lived with the couple while they were married, she could see that the relationship was a tumultuous one, with Tracy claiming Charles was a drug addict whose drug of choice was crack cocaine. In fact, a particularly nasty fight on June 6th, 2000, led to Tracy packing up and moving in with her brother so she could get away from Charles. This was far from the first time she fled her home in order to spend time away from her husband, always forgiving and always coming back home. But on this particular occasion, Charles gave his wife an ominous warning, telling her that if she left him, quote, it will hurt you more than it hurts me. Thrown off by his threat, Tracy told Emily, who lived with her paternal aunt, not to go back to Charles's home anymore. She agreed and went off to spend the night with her father, Stephen Dwayne Branch, in his Memphis, Tennessee home to celebrate Father's Day. On the morning of June 18th, 2000, Emily left her father's home at around 11 a.m. and, in the company of three or five other girls, one of which was her father's girlfriend's daughter, began their typical walk around the neighborhood, talking, gossiping, laughing, and living the carefree life only a teenager knows how to live. That's when, according to the other girls present, Charles Rice showed up and began talking to Emily. None of the girls knew quite what they were talking about, but after a minute or two, Charles left the girls and went to the store. And then, against her mother's wishes, the girls all went over to Charles's home on Firestone Street. Emily ran inside while her friends waited for her to come back out. None of this was really out of the ordinary, and the girls, unaware that Tracy had moved out, knew that Emily went over to visit them often and would hang out at Charles's home pretty frequently. 
When she finally came out of the house, she told her friends that they had to go. And not realizing anything was amiss, the girls said their goodbyes, made their way towards the park, and left Emily standing there on Charles's porch. It was about 4 or 5 p.m. when they last saw Emily. Now, because there are always a few sides to every story, according to Charles's stepfather, Willie, the reason Emily came into the house was to ask if she could walk the family dog. When Willie said no, Emily went outside to talk with the girls. He then said that she, with Charles, walked down the street and, to his recollection, that was around 3.40 in the afternoon. Later in the day, Charles returned to the house to watch some television. A third version of events would come from a man named Tony Evans, a friend of Tracy's who also lived on Firestone Street, who claimed he saw Emily and a, quote, lot of little girls walking to Charles's home and, a little later in the day, saw Emily and Charles walking away from the house and heading west. He thought it was odd that the pair were together given the recent fight. So concerned, he began following the unlikely pair. After turning off of Firestone Street, Charles and Emily, with Tony in tow, went up the small street towards an Amico station and veered off the pathway that ran along the side of the building. Now, Tony knew where this path was leading and knew that Brown Street was where a few of Charles's relatives were living at the time and assumed he was taking his stepdaughter to go visit some family. Figuring that Tracy and Charles had gotten back together and he just had not heard the news yet, Tony stopped following the pair and went back to his house to tend to his yard. Then 5 p.m. rolled around and Emily had still not come home. Her father, concerned, called the police and reported her missing. They, however, reported her as a runaway and said she would probably be back soon despite her father's insistence that, no matter how bad things got, Emily had never run away from home. Realizing that the police weren't going to help him, he and a few neighbors began searching for Emily Branch. The next day, Tracy called her friend Tony to see if he had seen Emily. He told her he had and explained the walk towards the Amico station with Charles Rice. After they hung up the phone, Tony got up and walked over to where he had last seen Emily, following the path to see if he could find anything of worth, hoping desperately to be the hero who found Emily and brought her home safely. Several days later, Stephen called over to Tony and told him that Emily had been missing since the 18th. That's when he said that, just two days after Emily was last seen, he saw Mario Rice, Charles's nephew, and Charles walking together down to the woods by the Amico station. He said the police were called out, but because it was late at night, they didn't go search the location. By this point, a few people were suspicious of Charles Rice, none more than Tony Evans, who for two or three nights in a row, hid in the crawl space under the house where he saw Mario and Charles so he could overhear their conversation. While there, he heard the pair discussing plans to kill Tracy, but never once heard them mention Emily at all. On June 25th, seven days after Emily's disappearance, Tony took out his newly repaired four-wheeler and drove back behind the Amico and through the trails where he was unable to get to on foot. When he did, he was hit with the sudden and putrid smell of decay and, with the help of a machete, started cutting away the brush near where he thought the smell was coming from. When he stepped up onto a tree, he looked down and saw a pair of blue and white tennis shoes. Putting two and two together, Tony came to the horrific conclusion and ran from the woods and straight to Stephen's house, telling him he had just found Emily's body behind the Amico station. 
The pair took Stephen's truck back into the woods and, lying in the ditch of a heavily wooded area, was the father's worst nightmare. There lay Emily, shorts and underwear around her ankles, and decomposed almost beyond recognition. According to the police, who were called as soon as Stephen was sure the body was that of his daughter's, the scene had very little blood and Emily's head had, quote, mummified. Wounds, likely inflicted by a kitchen knife, had severed her windpipe and esophagus prior to her death. With all signs pointed towards Charles Rice, police started questioning the stepfather who claimed that, on the day of her disappearance, he and Emily parted ways at the intersection of Bellevue and Firestone. When told that witnesses placed he and Emily in the woods where her body would eventually be found, he claimed that they must be mistaken, denied going anywhere near the woods with Emily, and said that he knew nothing about her death nor her disappearance. But when told that they believed Emily had been raped and asked him if he would provide a DNA sample for comparison, Charles flipped his story and said that he and the 13-year-old girl had, quote, consensual sex inside of the kitchen of his parents' home on the 18th of June, saying, quote, I had sex for about a minute with her. He went on further to say that Emily asked him for some money and to walk the dog. He said he didn't have any change and said if she would walk with him to the Amico station, he would get her some smaller bills. When they arrived, he told Emily that he didn't have any money and the pair parted ways. This then changed again to Emily leaving the house alone after they engaged in their supposed sexual act. This, of course, did not line up with the story his stepfather gave, and when told as such, Charles admitted to going into the woods with Emily, but again denied any involvement in her murder, saying he did nothing wrong. The police, who at this point had been told a handful of stories, were done with Charles and decided to arrest him and send him to Shelby County Jail. While checking him in, Charles asked to be placed in protective custody because he had received some threats from family members in the neighborhood. One of the officers, quick on his feet, asked, Do you mean the family members of the girl you killed? To which Charles responded, Yes, sir. This statement, however, would be the only time Charles vaguely admitted to killing Emily Branch. He continued to maintain his innocence and, at some point, changed his story again to implicate his own nephew in the murder. He said that he and Mario planned to have Emily meet at the location so that Mario could kill the young girl, claiming he was, quote, tired of seeing me go through things I was going through with Emily's mother. The initial plan, according to Charles, was to have Tracy accompany him to the woods. But when the time came, he could not find his wife and instead settled on her daughter as his target. He said that she offered to walk the dog and wanted $10 in exchange. So he told her to meet him at his parents' house where they, again, according to his version of events, had sexual intercourse. The pair then left the house, went to the Amico station for the change, and after Charles explained that he didn't have the money, walked with her into the woods where Mario was waiting. He then, in Charles's own words, quote, stabbed her in the head first and in the throat numerous times and in the chest area numerous times. He claimed that in the middle of the attack, Emily herself pulled down her clothing, assuming she was about to be raped by Mario. He said that he felt sad, guilty, and responsible because he lured her into the place where he knew she was going to lose her life. 
All of this was, of course, told to a jury, who, at the end of his trial, convicted Charles Rice of first-degree premeditated murder and first-degree felony murder. He was sentenced to death on January 14, 2002. The sentence was affirmed and, as of this moment, Charles remains on death row in Tennessee. When it comes to Mario Rice and exactly what, if anything, was brought up against him, I was unable to find sufficient evidence to give a clear answer. He did serve time for something related to the case, as noted by the Tennessee Department of Corrections website, which shows June 26, 2000 as his day of arrest. But he has, as far as I can tell, been paroled since and was scheduled to be released from supervision in September of 2019. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 15th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.